we go through our study, we will from time to time have what are essentially little sidebars. We've already had a couple of them as we've been going through the uh, Synoptic Gospels, and they will occur both in response to questions that have been raised in class, observations. Sometimes they'll come in the middle of a study. Sometimes I'll prepare something for the next study, and we usually will launch with that or I'll hold it till some point in the study. Today we've got one of those little sidebars on the issue of inspiration and authority of Scripture. I have handed out to you, well, not the big thick paper, but the one-sheet paper, entitled, at the top it says, Article 5 of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. This comes from the Methodist Articles of Religion, which were uh, given to us by John Wesley when he founded the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1784 here in the United States and comes to us from the Church of England. These come straight out of the Anglican Articles of Religion and in that connection, is, they are, the statement is identical to it. They haven't changed it. This dates from the Reformation period in the history of the church going back into the 1500s. And this here is a statement on the Bible, its nature, and, and how it contains what we need for salvation. So let's just read this statement. Of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation, the Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. And then it goes on to name the Holy Scriptures in terms of the content thereof, and especially the Old Testament books i.e. leaving out the Apocrypha, which is found in the Roman Catholic Bible, not giving it the same classification of authority, therefore, as the other books of the Old and New Testament. Now, that's a very long statement, and it has some of those King Jimmy-sounding therefores and thereins and containeths and some masculine language like men. So let's go back and take a look at this statement. It's actually rather straightforward. It is looking at the nature of Scripture in direct connection to what can be required for salvation purposes. Notice what it says. Whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any one. I'm going to change that any one that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or required or necessary for salvation. This is sort of doing in a negative way, responding in a negative way to the Roman Catholic tendencies towards adding on traditions and practices and making those traditions and practices necessary for one to be saved. And what the church reformers were saying back during the Reformation period and what the Church of England said when they adopted this article of religion 
was that if you cannot find it written in Scripture, and if it cannot be proved by what you find in Scripture, that's two bases, by the way. If you can't find it literally written in Scripture, and or if you cannot find it provable by what you find in Scripture, i.e. a thesis that you can prove through various scriptures that don't actually completely say it, but when you put them together, that stands behind the thesis and proves it. If you can't find it written in scripture or proved by scripture, then you cannot require it as an article of faith to be believed in order to be saved. That sets a limit on what has to be required for belief doesn't mean that you can't believe beyond what it says. You can. You simply can't require the beyond stuff for salvation. You can't require that someone believe it in order to be saved. If it's not written in the book, if it's not provable by what's in the book, then you can't say you got to believe it or you got to do it in order to be a Christian or in order to be saved. You can believe it and do it, whatever this is. And, and be okay, probably, possibly. But if it's not proven therein, you can't require for salvation. And, you know, you can come up with all sorts of examples of that. For instance, uh, the scripture nowhere authorizes the purchase of church buildings. The scripture nowhere authorizes the use of air conditioning, pews, or chairs. The scripture nowhere authorizes sound systems in our churches. Now, if you want to be very literal, if you can only do what the scripture says you can do, then you shouldn't have church buildings and you shouldn't have air conditioning systems in your churches and you, sh you shouldn't have them at all and you shouldn't have sound systems. <laughs> now, the Church of Christ has made a real big thing about well, the scriptures nowhere, the New Testament nowhere says that they had musical instruments in their worship. Therefore, you shouldn't have musical instruments in your worship. They say, since it's not in the scripture in the New Testament, that the New Testament church had musical instrumentation. Therefore, you shouldn't have musical instrumentation in your worship services. That's taking the scripture and making it the outer boundary limit of what you can do and believe to be saved. And, of course, they're not being consistent because Scripture nowhere says you can have a building. <laughs> I'm not, Church of Christ people always get mad at me when I point that out. Scripture, it says, well, Scripture nowhere says that you can have musical instrumentation in your worship, therefore you shouldn't have it. No organs, no pianos, no guitars, no nothing. And my Just voices. And I said, well, where does the Scripture say you can have a building? Oh, well, no, no, wait a minute. Now. They had churches. Yeah, they met in their homes. <laughs> the Christians met in their homes. What are you doing having a building? And they, they always then turn around and go away or they you know, don't respond or they attack me for something else. I mean, you know, you know obfuscation is common. But anyway, um, this statement, this article of religion sets the boundary for what must be believed. And it's only within scripture. So if it's outside of scripture, you might believe it. There's no problem with that. Not necessarily. But you can't be required to believe it in order to be saved, to be a Christian, to be part of the family of faith. 
Was this taking a slam at the Catholics, maybe? It's exactly what it was doing. It was responding to the Roman Catholic practice of adding non-biblical doctrines and requiring those non-biblical doctrines for salvation. Um, although the doctrine wasn't codified in the Vatican I in the 1800s, for example, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. While it hadn't been codified by Vatican I until the 1800s, it existed. The belief, the faith in the Immaculate Conception of Mary pre-existed Vatican I by several hundred years. The, the, utilization, the, 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 the veneration of, of, um, of, of relics, the utilization of, of indulgences to wipe out sin by paying a great big sum of money or going to certain holy sites. Um, going to Rome in the fall and one of the things I've been doing is looking up all the holy sites that I want to go visit and some of the resources I'm looking at are Roman Catholic resources and they tell you what order to go to this church and what to do with this church, who to get to sign your paper so that when you finish the sequence of all of the seven holy sites in, in, in Rome then you can take it to the Vatican and get it, get it signed and get an indulgence Sort of like a get out of hell free card. I mean, <laughs> or get out of purgatory quickly card kind of thing. Uh, I, I have no interest in the card, but I am interested in several of the sites for various reasons. Um, not having anything to do with the pilgrimage, just their historic reasons, the beautiful churches that they are, what some of those churches have in them, that kind of stuff. So um, all that stuff is extra biblical. Therefore, according to this article, it cannot be required that you do it or believe it in order to be saved. And the United Methodist Church's position has always followed this article in that if Scripture doesn't detail it, or you can't prove it by Scripture, you can't say someone has to believe it in order to be a Christian or to be saved or be a member of the church. Now that sets a standard for authority. It sets a standard for authority in Scripture and of Scripture. It means that Scripture is determinative. It sets a limit of what must be believed, what must be done, in order that one might be a Christian, live in the family of faith, be saved. And beyond it, there is permission, if you wish to believe it, you may, but it's not to be required. Belief. But it does set an authority position within Scripture. It, it sets a degree of authority. Which raises up the question, therefore, of what is meant by inspiration? What, what is meant by inspiration? Certainly, the authors of this article had in their minds that there was something about this book, the Holy Scripture, that... Makes, it says, containeth all things necessary to salvation. Well, there's something about it then that enables it to have that quality. And generally speaking, the reformers and Christians throughout 2,000 years nearly have talked about that in terms of inspiration. So, when we talk about inspiration in the authority of Scripture, what do we mean? What does it mean to say that the scriptures are inspired? Some people think it's inspired by God. Inspired by God, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's the basic question. 
What do we mean when, what does the church mean? What do the reformers mean? What do we mean today? What does the discipline mean when it says that the scriptures are inspired by God and therefore contain all things necessary for salvation? What does that mean to say that the scriptures are inspired? How should you live your life? How should you live your life? Yeah, they, they address those issues, those questions, what you should leave, how you should live. But what does it mean to be inspired? Let's look at the word inspire. I guess maybe the question is, it's not a trick question. I'm being very literal. Inspire. To inspire means to breathe in. Literally, from the Greek. To inspire means to breathe in. We say when the scriptures are inspired, they have been breathed into by God. Now, before you start thinking that says what it doesn't say, give fault to the reality that it, human beings... In the Genesis creation story, human beings were breathed into by God and made living spirits. Given living spirits that come from God. We're given the imago dei, the image of God, in creation. You know, when it talks about God forming the earth creature, the Adam, and then breathing into it, and it becomes a living spirit becomes a human being. It's the same concept. Inspiration to breathe in to. When we say the scriptures are inspired by God, breathed into by God, what do we mean? What do you think that might mean? That they were created by God, that they were that they were given life by God that through us that we can take them as whatever we see it, but it's still a living thing. It's a living thing. They were given life by God, meaning by God. We will have our interpretation of it, but God nevertheless stands behind them, within them, and through them. We can find out about God and about the church and about what we believe and why we believe it, those kinds of things. It, yes, that's, that's definitely a general conception of what one might mean by inspiration. Let's throw out another word since this one is giving us a little bit of trouble. This is another concept, concept that is always used when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture and you're dealing in debates especially between conservatives, moderates, and liberals on this subject. The word inerrancy. Huh? I don't even know that word. Inerrancy? When something is errant, what does it have? When something is errant, it has mistakes, errors. When you make an error, you're wrong. You've made a mistake. So this is blessed by God? In blessed be by God. Oh, wow. 
that inspiration is a blessing by God. Inerrancy, this is, by the way, inerrancy here is a different meaning for the word because it comes from a different language in its, in its origination. means that something has no errors. And that's a term that is often used of Scripture by certain groups. Another term that is uh, often used is infallible. Infallible. Perfect. Never fails. Now there's a difference between inerrant and infallible. Inerrancy speaks to the nature of something. By its nature, it is perfect. It, does ha it has no errors. It is without flaw or blemish. It is completely perfect as is. You could say that the love of a mother for her child in the nature of its love is inerrant. It has no flaws. By its nature, it is perfect. Infallible means that it doesn't lead or teach anything wrong. It doesn't lead us into error ourselves. Things that are infallible can be errant themselves. They can make mistakes. They can have flaws and problems with them. But so long as they don't lead you into mistakes of belief or action, you can say that they are infallible. Hence, the Roman Catholic Church gives the Pope infallibility. That was one of the things that came out of Vatican I, the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. When the Pope, Pope, when the Pope, when the Pope says something in a certain way, with certain backup of a pontifical commission, and makes a certain statement, what's called ex cathedra, it is considered infallible. He himself is not inerrant. But his statement can be considered without error. It cannot lead the church into error. That's what the Roman Catholics believe. We don't agree with that. It's one of the reasons why we're not Roman Catholics. Um, it's one of the reasons why many Protestants today are not at least willing to consider union with Rome more seriously because of that doctrine of papal infallibility. But that same basic idea of infallibility is often ascribed to Scripture by Protestants. The Scriptures, as we have them in our Bibles today, may not themselves be perfect. They may have mistakes in them. Copy errors, errors in translation, Errors in opinion of people who wrote them. I.e., when Paul says that I wish, I don't have a word of the Lord for this, but I would rather that all of you be celibate just like me, single just like me. But if you can't go through life without having desires for someone sexually, then get married. Well, that's his opinion, and he says it's his opinion. And if the church had followed his opinion, we would have had a real problem. We wouldn't exist. 
Because much of the church depends upon second, third, and fourth generations to continue the line and to continue the growth pattern. We'd have to reinvent ourselves every generation. And that would be somewhat problematic. So Paul's opinion there could be said to be very errant. There are other examples from James and from Peter and from Paul and from some of the utilizations of Scripture that, that the New Testament uses of the Old Testament and passages in the Old Testament that can be said to be errant, i.e. not perfect, but nevertheless, the church would proclaim, they are infallible because when you take them within the whole of what they have written, they do not lead people into fallacious belief, fallible belief or action. So those two words are often used of scripture. Conservatives will use the inerrant word. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. Unblemished, perfect, without error, word of God. Moderates and people on the other end will tend to use infallible. The scripture does not lead us into error. People lead us into error. My interpretation may be erroneous. I may have a fallible understanding of it, but it itself does not lead one into fallacious belief or practice. If one interprets it correctly, it is infallible. That's always the trick right there. One has to interpret it correctly. All right? Which brings us back to the question of inspiration. How could inspiration produce an inerrant Bible? Even if it's blessed by God, it still has to go through people, and people are not perfect. Correct. The, con- the problem with the idea of biblical inerrancy, the problem here is it, God used people to write the books. So even if God said, okay, take dictation, Moses, and then God speaks and Moses writes it down exactly as Moses heard it. The problem is as Moses heard it, those of you who have hearing trouble or even weirdnesses in their hearing, as sometimes I do, know that that can be an issue. And then as Moses heard it, and then also in a language of human beings. In that case, Hebrew. In the New Testament case, Greek. In the days of Jesus, it was Aramaic, modern then, modern Hebrew. And it was the language, the grammar, the vocabulary made by people, human beings. And those, those elements are all fallible in one way or another. So even if it was God dictating the words you would still have the issue of the dictator, ta- the dictation taker, the scribe, hearing it right and then choosing the right words in the various languages or the various language to write it down. So the Achilles heel of, in, of, of inerrancy of the Bible comes at the point of, even at the point of dictation inspiration, i.e. God says it and the scribe writes it down. That's not the only way of understanding inspiration, though. Dictation. Some people have a dictation understanding of Scripture. That the Bible is the inerrant word of God without flaw. And God dictated absolutely every single word in it. And it probably in the King James. And they wrote it down as they heard it. 
Well, there are lots of problems with that understanding. First of all, most of the Bible clearly isn't written that way. You could say that there are pieces of it that are written that way, as if God said it and the person wrote it down. There are chunks of the law that appear to have been, at least they understood themselves to be writing that way. There's very little of the New Testament that is written that way. In fact, very little at all. Some pieces of the, of the Acts of the Apostles seem to have that kind of idea where, where Paul retells the account of his being encountered on the road to Damascus by Jesus. There appears to be an element of that tiny one little sentence. But for the most part, the New Testament seems to lack that kind of stuff. Sometimes the book of Revelation seems to be doing that. But for the most part, the, the, the New Testament lacks that type of inspiration. Instead, inspiration is more along the lines of God blessing it. Or God impacting the lives of those who experienced Jesus to such an extent that they felt compelled to write down that experience in such a way that it communicated the reality of that experience, their understanding of that experience, the wonderful reality of being in the presence of God for others to read and hear and understand. Um, when I'm on a cruise out in the middle of the ocean, especially when I'm out on a forward deck in the late afternoon and the ship is sailing into the sunset, once that sun hits the horizon and starts to go down, the beautiful patterns, especially if there's any clouds in the sky, the beautiful patterns and colors are unbelievable. And we often will use the term inspiring in that sense. And if I were a painter and could do better than stick figures, I would want to paint down what I'm seeing or I'll... Since I can't do that, but I can take good photographs, I'll pull out my camera. I feel inspired to capture the image. That inspiration, that urging is an idea behind inspiration. And all of these alternative conceptions of inspiration other than dictation point towards infallibility. That the scriptures do not lead us into fallacious faith when they are allowed to speak as intended, when they are allowed to speak as applies to the church today, they do not lead themselves, they do not lead us into error. Now, people can teach all sorts of things that are erroneous from them. Happens all the time. Remember David Koresh was reading from Scripture all the time and interpreting it in such a way that it was utterly fallacious. But where was the error? Was it here? Or was it in the person who was doing the teaching? It was in person doing the teaching. Now, could the Bible have been the same way when they wrote the Bible? They interpreted it a different way. That sentence didn't sound right, so I changed. There it are there are layers upon layers upon layers of in, of inspiration and interpretation within Scripture within within multiple levels of it. And you can come across that. I'll give you another, for instance, from the New Testament. When Paul says, he's, first of all, Paul never said women keep silent in the church. He didn't say it. It's added into the margin later by a scribe. But he did say that when women are preaching and praying in church, <laughs> they should keep their heads covered. And then he proceeds with a paragraph-long rambling attempt to try to defend his position. 
And he gives multiple reasons why he thinks women should keep their heads covered when they're preaching or praying in church. And then he gets to the end of this rambling, circuitous paragraph. And then he finally says, uh, if anybody's in, in, uh, interested in fighting over this, don't bother fighting over it. We don't have any real solid rules about this in the church. This is simply my opinion. Well, I wish you'd started out and said it that way. I have no trouble with Paul's opinion. I can agree with it or disagree with it. But it took him a whole paragraph to get there. Now, did God inspire that paragraph? No. That's Paul's opinion. He states it as such, finally. But it's his opinion. It reflects the cultural standards of his day in the Jewish Christian community. And he's trying to apply it to the Gentile Christian community. And he ought to know that's a no-no. That, that doesn't work. In fact, he knows better elsewhere. So that's an example. Well, Paul was writing letters to the people so they can have a better mm -hmm. church life, spiritual life. So they can answer answering questions that they had for him, problems that were arising. And he was sitting down and writing his answers out in such a way to try to answer their problems, their circumstances, their situations. And the church says about that, that God, to use your term, blesses it. But it would even say even more so that there is a degree to which when Paul is talking on many of these kinds of issues, he is speaking under not the dictation guidance, but the general overall guidance of the Holy Spirit in inspiration. His opinions get in, his interpretations get in, his choice of words get in, his grammar gets in, his character gets in. You better believe all that stuff gets in. But nevertheless, even through all of that, there is a layer to which it has a degree of authority and inspiration. And that truth can be seen in the fact that it was the first part of the New Testament to be codified as New Testament. It was in the 90s already accepted by churches all over the Mediterranean basin as being scripture, even though Paul certainly didn't write it as such. He wrote it as letters to churches that were having problems or to introduce himself to those churches as in the case of Rome. So what I would say is, is that this article of religion supports an authoritative understanding of Scripture that means that when understood, interpreted, applied correctly will not lead you into error and hence it has an infallibility but that it doesn't go to the point of the conservative interpretation of inerrancy. Now, that being said, I do believe in the inerrant word of God. And I believe that is Jesus. The word of God in John's gospel is identified as being the incarnate Christ, Jesus. And I will apply perfection to God. God is perfect. And if Jesus is God incarnate in human flesh then I have no trouble saying that Jesus is the 
inerrant word of God in that sense. But I have a severe problem applying some a level of perfection like inerrancy to a Bible that was written by human beings from human being perspectives with human being words and grammar given human being problems trying to answer human being situations. I just have a problem with that. But the people who wrote the New Testament wrote down what Jesus said and they're... Mm-hmm. And they may have written it wrong. And what? Well, I'm sorry. The, they may have written it wrong. Like they they interpreted it. Their interpretation. When we read, as we read through Matthew and Luke, especially, but Mark as well, we will come across the interpretation of Matthew and the interpretation of Luke. We will come across them many times. Sometimes it's separate from the red words of Jesus. Sometimes it's within the words of Jesus. As they adjusted the grammar or the word choice to apply it to whatever the circumstance was. How the stories are placed in a sequence is also an interpretation. All of those are interpretations of the writer's. I believe that God plays a role in those interpretations for various reasons, hence blessing it. But I don't believe this was dictation, God saying, write it that way. I think it's rather obvious that's not the case. Any questions? It's a good thing he did Ten Commandments by himself then. The original Ten Commandments, God... Well, the original Ten Commandments is as close as you can get to that inerrancy concept. Except the two that Moses dropped on the way down. Oh, the tablets? (laughs) 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 Or as in Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1 when he comes down with the three tablets and says, I bring God's 15. He drops one. Oops. Ten! Ten commandments! <laughs> no, that's funny, but no. <laughs> but a lot of this could have been done by the scribes also. If you go to write, a good secretary, for instance, yeah. you dictate something to her and send it out. When she goes to type it, if it doesn't quite sound right, She'll the make secretary some. will change it where it sounds good. Yeah. And I think the scribes probably took a lot on themselves say, wait a minute, this doesn't flow real good. Maybe it ought to be said like this. Okay, there's there's a degree to which that's true, especially in certain books. However, if that were always true, you wouldn't be able to identify any of the letters of Paul as being by the same person. And yet, it's grammatically and, and vocabulary-wise, you can identify most of the books, the letters of Paul, as coming from the same person even though he used different scribes for most of them. Uh, You get to a point, though, where suddenly he says, see what big letters I use when I write in my own hand? When he gets to that, then he's no longer using a scribe. He's switched to himself. And you can identify within that little segment grammatical choices and turns of phrase that that are reflected even in the dictated material. So to an extent, yes, but... What we might do today in the 21st century, or in the 20th century with the secretary you're dictating to, may not necessarily be the way in which scribes in the ancient world functioned. 
they would frequently write down and maybe correct a little grammar here and there, but they wouldn't change the word choice, and they wouldn't change the word order, which was sometimes you could do in various languages. The scribe, the, the, then, then they would hand it to the apostle, and in this case, Paul, and Paul would apparently go back through, read through it, and make changes. And, and make adjustments to it. So there, and there, there are examples of that. So there isn't, but, but for example, the problems that are existent in First and Second Timothy and Titus, having come from Paul, can be traced back to scribal utilization. Paul didn't have paper and pen with him or quill with him. His scribe didn't have paper and quill with him, and so Paul dictated. The scribe remembered. And then later, the scribe wrote it down, and after a period of time, it be, ended up being paraphrased more in the scribe's memory with the scribe's grammar and the scribe's vocabulary. So much of the content is Pauline, but much of the grammar and vocabulary is not. See, that's what bothers me with Paul. Today, he'd be a good writer for the New York Times. <laughs> really, when he when he talks about a subject, like you said, maybe the scribe wrote it down, he looked at it, so wait a minute, now we can probably add a little more to this to make it sound a little more I shouldn't say believable, but we gotta add something to it. To say it's just it looks cloudy today, that's you know, that's not a good statement. It's cloudy today, but you know, it's a good chance that it might rain when you see a cloud, because a cloud, you know, can you know, condense it and it does this. You know, this is what the New York Times type of writing does. And I kind of picture Paul the same way. He can't say this is black. He's got to expound on it. Yeah, that was black true. He, he did a lot of that. That is true. And that's why I'm wondering if, if Paul himself even changed some of it. Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. We, in fact, it's pretty clear based on structure. There's whole PhD dissertations have been written based upon tiny little passages of scripture that the scholar believes Paul dictated one way, the scribe wrote it down differently, and Paul went back and rewrote it. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, this is sort of a sidebar on the subject of inspiration and authority of Scripture. Um, to summarize it, I don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. I believe in the inerrancy of Jesus and of God, but not in the inerrancy of the Bible. I believe in the authority of Scripture. And that when it's properly understood, properly interpreted, given its, it, given its position and its place and what it's intended to do for today and in today, I believe that it is infallible in the extent that it doesn't teach us error in faith or practice. Hence, this article of religion, which says that if it's not contained in scripture or interpreted by it, it cannot be required for salvation. Any questions? I think what bothers me most of all is the translations. That if we each understood Hebrew and Greek, and yeah. that we could make our own choices, maybe. But I, and I would hope they'd be the same. Translations? <laughs> translations? Uh, early on in the transmission <clears throat> of the Bible, uh, by the late middle second century, the first translations were being made of the New Testament from Greek into Latin, a language of the western half of the empire. And we have copies of those, you know, partial in some cases, more extensive in others, 
of these early Latin translations. Every single one of them is different from every single other one of them because it was the product of an individual making a translation from Greek into Latin as seemed best to them. There's not a single edition of what's called the Old Latin text that is identical to any other edition, even close in some cases, because there are many different ways of saying what the Greek says in another language, like Latin. It's just as in English. The differences between the NRSV and the NIV and the King James and the NASV vary greatly, very greatly in word choice, grammatical construction, and that's true in any language. Early on, the earliest copyists copying it and making translation into Latin, they would vary from copy to copy tremendously. It was only later when Jerome comes along that, that they got a standard translation that didn't vary a whole lot in Latin. When was that? Jerome's Vulgate came in the 500s AD, and that was at the authority of the church. The church said, you'll use this particular translation into Latin and only this one. So it was kind of like my fiat. The, 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 the Pope said, use this one, and that was the one that was used. And before you think, well, that's a, that, that seems kind of ridiculous, churches do it too. There are, there are churches that exist today that will only allow its members to use the King James. We spent a long time on that, but I think it was, uh, I think it was important to at least talk about it, that uh, we are dealing with we're dealing with scripture, not just interesting literature. And I take it as scripture, not just interesting literature. This isn't, the, this isn't Homer. <laughs> this, is, this is scripture. And it contains and communicates and speaks to us through inspiration. The inspiration of God, the inbreathed nature of God, blessing it, authorizing it, empowering to some extent the authors of it. And that the degree to that, we'll see as we read. We've already seen a little bit of that. Um, let's read some scripture. <laughs> After an hour. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. I'm only going to give you two verses to get started. I'm known as the one who gives a, who starts us up with a running start by seven verses, and we don't get much beyond that. When Joseph awoke from sleep, after having had the annunciation of the angel regarding the birth of Jesus, that he should not be putting his, uh, his uh, uh, fiance away because she was found to be pregnant. Instead, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't put her away. The child to be born will be holy. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Now, we read that last time in conjunction with the Annunciation unto Joseph out of Matthew. Remember, the Annunciation to Mary comes from Luke. Denunciation unto Joseph comes from Matthew. But here's the little hymn. That is the story of the birth of Jesus in Matthew. That's it. That's the only place it occurs in Matthew. When, the, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. That's the birth. Now let's keep going. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men, wise men. Where's the three? <laughs> yeah, wise like men, magi, magoi, literally. Plural, more than two. Wise guys from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now the wise guys came. Who were they asking for? The child who has been born king of the Jews. Now, you know, that could be Herod's son. They didn't know this. They didn't know that. They just know that the star of a king has appeared in the sky. They've come from Persia to find out where he is. Now, when you're coming west from Persia, from modern day Iraq and Iran, and you're going due west, why did they stop in Israel? Because of the star. Because of the star? Yeah. Following, following yonder star. If they kept on going after they got past Jerusalem, what would happen to them? They got in wet. The Mediterranean Sea gets in the way. They need to get a boat. They went as far as they could to where it's not not to the shore to to where the religious and political rulers of the land were. That was as far west as they could go and still be under that sign in the zodiac, whatever it was. Whatever the star was. Why was all Jerusalem disturbed or scared? Why would they be? Because they come into the city to ask this question. They probably asked it just openly of people all around. They come into town. They ask. They don't know what's going on. They just know this is the capital. So they come in and they ask, where's the, where's the newborn king? There's been a king born. We've seen it in the sky. Where is he? Scared some of those people to death because they got Herod ruling and they know he hasn't had a son recently. Been a while. And so they're getting worried, so they direct him to go speak to the king. And, the, and King Herod calls in all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, why would he say that? Well, he knows he doesn't have a new son. I mean, you know, he. He might have thought, he might have gone through his brain, what did I have, you know, relations with this harlot over there on Lower East Hechava Street? No, I don't think so. So, so it's not me. It must be the Messiah that they're talking about. Related back to what was written in the Old Testament. Right. The, the wise guys don't know it's the Messiah. They think it's a king. But yet they said king of the Jews. King of the Jews. 
could be Herod's son. Huh? Because they were saying because yeah. they were ruling over the Jews. They were ruling over the Jews. So, so that doesn't mean that it was a king of Jewish lineage then. Well, the, the, the Herodians were thought of. They're Dumians, but they're thought of. As, and there is some Jewish ancestry in the Edomian fam, in their family, although they are Edomian. They do have some Jewish ancestry in their blood. Some of the Edomians who intermarried with the Israelites gained power and authority and then eventually rose to power during the intertestamental period. Frankly, in response to the Maccabean rebellion against, against Antiochus Epiphanes, and there was power vacuum that developed at that time, and one of the rich families grew to power, and it happened to be an Edomian family of the Herodian ancestry. And there were Jews in the Herodian family as well, and so it is a Jewish family. They are Jews, but they're heavily Edomites by ancestry. And that reflected the history of the conflict and what was foretold that the Edomians would fight with the Israelites and would eventually gain power over them and become a real problem for them. And the Herodian family was problematic. Do we know what possessed the Magi to travel? They saw a sign. But I mean, like, they know they're not going to catch up with the star. Well, they're going to go, they want to go find out who this who this birth child is so they could pay him homage. They see the sign in the sky, whatever the star is, whatever the astrological symbol is, and they decide they want to go pay homage to this newborn king. So they go west into the land of Israel, go to where there are going to be people who will know where a newborn king is. And they start asking the question. And it results in people getting afraid because they know that if King Herod finds out there's a usurper to the throne, he's going to be ticked off and start killing folk. And But uh, I'm sure that's a big chunk of it. Herod himself wants to find out. And he knows that since he doesn't have a newborn son, it has to be somebody else, i.e. the Messiah. And he would be thinking in terms like every other Jew, the Messiah is coming to set up his kingdom. Yeah, the objective of the Messiah was to come and and usurp or get rid of or take out of office those who have taken office and don't belong there and reestablish the kingdom of David and reestablish right worship in the temple and overthrow oppression that was occupying them. Now, at this point in time, the oppressive occupier wasn't as immediately present as, as they would be later, but it was the Romans. It was the Romans. Israel, Judea at the time, was part of Rome, the empire, under the rulership of Herod the Great as a vassal king. And the Messiah was expected to come to overthrow that vassal king, the wrong worship of Yahweh in the temple, the wrong practices of the Israelite people, and, of course, the external oppression of the Gentiles, i.e., the Romans. That was what they were expecting. And Herod was afraid that that's what they had seen. A portent to the birth of the Messiah. Since he knows he doesn't have a newborn kid, that's who it got to be. That's who he's afraid it was going to be. So that he's the one who jumps to the conclusion that it's the Messiah. They, the chief priests and the scribes, told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet... And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
or by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So he's there's going to be a Messiah born in Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be. So if he's been born, that's where he is. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And apparently it had appeared about two years ago. We found that out a little later. So in other words, it's taken him that long to decide to come on west. Came a long way. Well, they, they came from Persia, which is across the desert. It might have taken a few months for them to make the journey at most. It's probably been in the sky for a while. Maybe they were busy doing other things. I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. All I know is that later we find out that it, it'd be about two years. That's no, nobody else, this, the concept of this star that gets these magi coming across, <laughs> did nobody else put any importance in this star? We've never had this star happen since. Well, in terms of what it was, conjunction probably of a planet and a star, mm -hmm. which spoke to these these astrologers, what they are. Yeah, um, but at this point in time, you got to be careful. At this point in time, astrology and astronomy are not separated; they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. And these magi were looking in the sky. They saw this astrological portent, whatever this star is. And they said, aha, there's been a king born in Israel. Let's go pay him homage. And they eventually get over there and they find out that it's not the king of Herod. It's not King Herod's son. It's somebody else. And Herod says, go find out. So the people of Judea were that into this astronomy. astronomy. Well, the people of Judea. I've got a, I got to have a reference here that the Jews were not themselves astronomers because Correct. they saw astronomy only as the study of the stars and anything else like astrology mm -hmm. was notorious for, because it was associated with heathen idolatry. It would be problematic. They would look to the stars for signs and symbols for the seasons, when to plant, how to travel, several other things too, by the way. So that but, would explain why they didn't get all excited when this star appeared, whereas these... Depending on what it is. Depending on what it is, uh, but yeah, uh, it's uh, used to be believed that this was some kind of a supernova. Uh, Isaac Asimov wrote a, a short story in which he speculates that it was a supernova that occurred, but there is no known supernova that uh, occurred, which uh, at that point in time. So it's some other kind of an astrological sign that people who lived in Persia or elsewhere where they practiced the interpretation of stellar events would have found fascinating and of interest and would have told them that a king had been born in Israel. But the Israelites themselves, the Jews in Judea, wouldn't have been really particularly interested in the event. And that's what it's Isaac Asimov himself yeah. is saying in here. Really? These wise guys could easily have been inspired. And it does say too that um, the reason why he put forth that idea that it was a supernova is because there, even though in the dark ages astronomy was virtually non-existent in Europe, mm -hmm. there is there are records by astronomers in China and Japan 
during those times. There are. There, there was some sort of, mm -hmm. of stars or some sort of astronomical event. Thank you. <laughs> um, another possible speculation has been that there was an impact on the moon, a, a meteorite impact on the moon that it may have, you know, chopped off a little piece of the moon and it was in an independent orbit for a while. That's another theory that has since been disproven. There is no impact from that period that would have been that great. So let's keep going. Then Herod secretly called the wise men and learned of them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me words that I may go and pay him homage. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> When they baloney, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star. This is fascinating. Went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. That's fascinating. The, how to understand that has left a lot of people. Because that means it would have had to been there for like two years. Right, which would not be necessarily a conjunction. Mm -hmm. If you understand that literally and not figuratively, then yeah. As it's usually depicted literally in movies, you see the star shining down and right moving over manger, right over the manger. Yeah, I know. Of course, you got to remember, that ain't here. <laughs> that ain't here. The manger ain't here. Nor is this really depicted that way. It simply says... When they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. Read strangely, but hard to comprehend what that would be. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, on entering the house, oikos is the Greek word. Oikos is house. Not stable. Well, you'd hope they wouldn't be there after two years. <laughs> the point is that this isn't taking place at the birth. This is later. Up to two years later. On entering the house, they saw the child, Padion in Greek, which is not an infant. It's somewhat up to about five years old at the most. Actually, actually up to puberty. We get pediatrics from this word, by the way. Um, but anywhere from about a year or so up to about five years, this word would be commonly used. But certainly, theoretically, all the way up to the beginning of puberty, it could be used for child. That's a pretty good translation. But not infant. So again, this is not occurring at the birth scene. All of our iconography says it's the birth scene. It's not at the birth scene. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. 
Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's the three wise guys. There's three gifts. Our iconography depicts a wise guy for a gift. Each one has, one has gold, one has frankincense, and one has myrrh. But that's not what the scripture says. Could have been two, the two is the adequate witness. <laughs> it could have been two. It's at least two. It could have been 20. It could have been 10. Number of divine perfection. Could have, could have, yeah. could have been three, the number of the Trinity. Seven. Could have, could have been any. Could have been 12, one for each of the tribes of Israel. I don't know. It just couldn't have been one. Because it's plural. Magoi. Magi. Plural. And... And there are three gifts that are given. And therefore, tradition has, and this tradition goes back a long way. I mean, in the mosaics in Rome, some of them depict three wise men. <laughs> Going back to the 5th century. So this is a very old tradition of depicting it this way. But the scripture doesn't say it this way. What are way. they still doing in Bethlehem? Huh? Why are they still in Bethlehem? Well, for a year. You just said like one to five years, probably. Yeah. This is probably probably somewhere in Jesus' Counting. second year. I know. Can't be much later than two, though. Because by then, Herod be dead. <laughs> On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, and his, Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold. What's gold? Money. What's frankincense? Incense. It's a resin incense. You burn it for religious purposes. It's extremely expensive. At this time, it was extremely expensive. Not so much so today. And myrrh. What's myrrh? It's a spice. It's also a oil. It's a spice-based oil that is used for perfume and for anointing the dead. And hence, there are three theological statements being made here. First one I always thought was really weird. The gift for a king is gold. Well, kings got gold. Why do they need it as a gift? But give it to me. But, <laughs> but no, the gift, the gift of gold symbolizes his kingship. The gift of frankincense symbolizes his divinity. The gift of myrrh bespeaks his coming death. He was born to die. So each, each theological point, he is the king of kings, gold. He is God incarnate in flesh, frankincense. You worship him. And he will die, myrrh. He needs, he needs something to place on him for his burial, to be anointed in his burial. So there's three theological proclamations being made with these gifts, one for each. And, ha and, and, and usually the song that we three kings of Orient are interprets each of these gifts that way. And it's a very ancient interpretation. Not new with the song even. And the song isn't new. It's a very ancient interpretation and a good thought, solid theological interpretation of each of these gifts that goes back to the church fathers. And they're not wrong. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod... They left for their own country by another road. 
you ever notice that the men in this story always have to dream? They get their warnings by instructions. It's like, oh, okay, I dreamed it. Okay, I'll do it. But Mary, the angel appeared, and she went, oh, okay. That's so in, and that's in Luke. <laughs> but you're right. And notice, again, Matthew's very masculine-oriented. Very much masculine-oriented. It's the guys who are active here. Herod, chief priests and scribes, the wise men themselves. Mary just kind of sits there with the child. That's her only role here. And Joseph in here. Not yet. Not, not told that in the story. Maybe he was out making a chest of drawers or something. I don't know. Now, after they had left. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. And now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. See? Whispered to Joseph in a dream. So the next time I want a guy to do something, I'm going to whisper. And when he whispers, I'm going to do it. <laughs> nice try. Yeah, let me know how that works. <laughs> when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in the town in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Now they, he learned that obviously when they first visited uh, about two years ago, sir. Okay, well, so he's going to kill every kid two years or younger to make sure he gets them. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they, were, they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Oh, how much time do we have other records that show um, how many years it was? Well, um, if Jesus was born in two, with the proper dating for the death of Herod and then the Magi come and then Herod has the kids killed and then himself dies just a few months later they would have been in Egypt only a short period of time possibly less than a year possibly they may have come back into Israel around 1 1 AD or 2 AD somewhere like that remember there was no zero year goes from 1 BC to 1 AD. And if we're dating the 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 eclipse that is used to date the death of of King Herod to the full eclipse that was seen in Israel in 1, then you really 
then Jesus was born prior to that. And then the events of the Magi occurred not long before Herod's death. It's a tight period of time. It's a tight period of time. Which also means that it couldn't have been more than maybe about a year. So they were giving an estimate on how long it's been since the sign, the portent in the sky was there, and therefore how old the baby might be. But they didn't have an exact birth date. You know, they couldn't say he was a Capricorn or something. <laughs> Unlike the movie The Life of Brian, where they ask him what his sign is. <laughs> well, we can say that now. Well, yeah, we can say it now. He's in September of 29th. But, uh, we know exactly what he is. But, <laughs> but that's, that's because we have enough information. So Jesus was probably born in 2 AD. BC. BC. Okay. So the Magi show up in... 1. 1. 1 BC. At, at the earliest. At the earliest. And that's about when Herod... Herod dies not long after that. He dies in 1 AD. 1 AD. 1 AD. Right after it. They, they came. So he would, they would come about a year later. And all of those events then occurred right there and then. And then Jesus would not have been any older than two and was somewhere between one and two. I would say probably around his first birthday, somewhere in that period of time. After his first birthday, possibly, but not much later than that. Do we have any, uh, any months of the year indication of when they were? Right? No. We don't know. We're dealing with a very narrow window of time here. A very narrow window of time. But we don't know in terms of detail. But they weren't in Egypt for very long. Just a short period of time. According to this, they wouldn't have been there very long. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But he had heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth. So that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Now we've seen it again and again and again. So that what was spoken by the prophets, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Matthew is doing this repeatedly. These events occurred to fulfill what the scripture had proclaimed would happen. That's the point of why he's making these statements. That's why Matthew is telling the story. He's telling the story to say this is true about Jesus. This is his nature. This is who he is. He is the Son of God, incarnate in human flesh. He is king. He is prophet. He is sacrifice. He's writing to Jews. And he is writing to Jewish Christians, essentially. That's why he's trying to tie it back to the Old Testament. And he's tying it tightly into the Old Testament for that exact reason. It's brief. It's short. It's not expansive. All right? Interesting on that last one, though, Joseph didn't listen to yeah. um, that whispering voice, that, that dream. That dream. He needed to have another dream. <laughs> and it's also interesting that, that he wasn't told to go there so that it could be fulfilled, uh-huh. 
like he Ma. like it was in the one to go down into Egypt. Correct. It just simply says, There he made his home in the town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you read Matthew totally divorced from Luke, pretend you've never heard of Luke, and all you had was what was written in Matthew, you would make the following assumptions. Joseph and Mary were natives of Bethlehem. They had never lived in Galilee. Matthew contains nothing about Galilee until they go there after the birth. If you didn't have Luke, that is the assumption you would make. Unless you say, why would you choose Galilee unless there was something that the, drew him there? The, the way it's articulated, there he made his home in a town called Nazareth. It introduces Nazareth mm -hmm. Galilee. Sort of, you know, as if you've never heard of it before. Because you haven't, if why all you have is Matthew. This one says, in their own city called Nazareth. In their own city called Nazareth, made his home in a town called Nazareth. Um, there and came and came and oh, lived. I'm sorry, never mind. I added Luke because I'm looking at the, the, the seven sources. They've already they mixed it all together for me. They've already mixed it for you. The danger, that's what I, at first, I want us to listen to just what Matthew said before we move to Luke. Matthew, if you're just reading Matthew, if all you have, let us say you're a member of the church in Antioch. You don't have Luke in front of you, but you do have Mark and you do have Matthew and you have the stories. And this is what you've got. You would assume they were natives of Bethlehem and that they moved to Galilee in order that this might be fulfilled. That's why they stayed in Bethlehem so long. That, that's why they stayed Duh. in Bethlehem so long. That's where well, they were living. Right. There is no manger. There is no inn. None of that is in Matthew. There are no shepherds. Yeah, where are the shepherds? All of the stuff that is the trappings of the birth narrative that we all know, with the exception of the Magi, is not in Matthew. Matthew is brief. His reason for telling this is specific we're sacrificing someone in the yes. same <laughs> Matthew is brief. <laughs> Let's move to Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be taxed, registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. Notice the, the identity not yet married is maintained from the earlier readings in Luke. Notice they're from Nazareth. That's where they're living. And they're going to Bethlehem yeah. to partake in the census that occurred under Quirinius. Historically speaking, there's been lots of debate over whether or not this census actually occurred. 
And it's only been within recent years that we have historic evidence that it actually did occur. That there was a census of non-Roman citizens that occurred in the provinces to fund a certain war that was going on. And that census occurred when Quirinius was governor in Syria. We now know that's a fact, whereas just seven or eight years ago, there was dispute as to whether or not it happened. We don't have the results of the census, but we do know it occurred. Joseph also went from the, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. That's an interesting statement. Engaged but not married, expecting a child. This is knowing the facts of the source of the conception that it's from the Holy Spirit, not by a consummation, i.e. they had sex and that established the marriage. So this is to us. We know that they are not married. The child is not Joseph's product, but the product of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, technically, they're not married, but they are engaged. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now this is the story we know. This is the depiction of the birth. This is the birth of Jesus. As our modern and ancient iconography communicates it to us. Born in a stable, essentially. The stable of the inn in Bethlehem. The stable of the inn in Bethlehem, in that period in time, the inns were located along right up against a hillside. And the stables are located in the caves underneath and behind. And when you go to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which dates back to the 300s AD, and you go to that church and you're on tour, the tour guide will tell you, now we're not entirely sure, I mean 100% certain, which of these caves it is. Tradition says it's this one. All right? But there are other cave structures here, and they were all used as stables, and they all have altars in them. So we got one. It's one of these, and we got it. <laughs> and this is the place in Bethlehem where, 2,000 years ago, transients who were traveling through would stay. These were the homes of some fairly rich people who kind of like bed and breakfasts. And they would come and they would stay. You didn't have separate rooms or anything like that. You had a big common area where you slept. And if they were full up, then your choice would be stay outside or go sleep with the, with the animals. And that's exactly what happened. They went back into the cave and slept with the animals. Now, I've been in the traditional one that's been identified. And like everything else in Israel... Christians have, over the centuries and millennia, shrinified it, turned it into a shrine. 
and there's marble everywhere, and there's a hole you can put your hand through and touch the bare rock underneath where supposedly he was born. And you can go where the crib was, but the crib is now totally marbled in. It doesn't look like anything like it would have looked like. And I got to really be skeptical about it, but I noticed that there are tapestries all over these walls. And if you go back and lift back the tapestry and look, you notice that's a rough-hewn stone rock wall. Not made by hand. It's a cave. And the tapestries are covering them to soften it, to make it more presentable. But it's a, it's a cave that we were in. And then we went from that cave to another cave, and, and we got to see several of the others as we went through to go to another part of the site. But, um, but it's all part of a cave structure. And the church is built over it. The main entrance used to be through the middle of the nave in the middle of the sanctuary. They, they closed that off during remodeling at one point and they made the entrance around the back. But you can still go in. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, it's, it really is interesting. There's an altar now over the site that supposedly was the site where he was born. Whether or not it's that cave or a different cave in the system, we don't know. And I actually I, I appreciated the, the tour guide when he said that, yeah. I don't know where I read this, whether it was National Geographic or what, but it it kind of outlined what houses looked like back then mm -hmm. or dwelling places. There was kind of several rooms and it sort of could go underground. Yes. But the further you go underground, you get closer to the animals uh -huh. of the household. That's right. And you know, speculation could be that, you know, there was no place for them other than right there close to the animals. Because the rest of the house was full with transients who were in town for the census taking? Must be the death scene. Boy, Somebody's going crazy. I could die, I could die a little faster. Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> Croak, come on. But anyway, it looked like the animals were part. <laughs> yeah. Part of the household. They are, well, the they're kept in, yeah, essentially. Now, there would be a, various ways to get in and out. Yeah. But, uh, well, if you were traveling that far, wouldn't you take some of your flock with you? You're traveling money. You might. Well, you would, you know, if you've got your donkey that you were traveling with, you want a place to put. As I often say, this is the garage behind, the, 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 the parking garage out behind the Motel 6. This is kind of the, the, you know, to put it in modern language, that's where they're staying. In the parking garage behind the Motel 6. I mean, really. And, um, but this is it. This is the traditional scene that we think of when we think of the birth. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields keeping watch with their flock by night. Something they did not do in December, but would have been doing in September. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. Then the angel said unto them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those 
whom he favors. They weren't sleeping. They weren't sleeping. Read your translation, verse Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Yeah, that's the traditional rendering of verse 14. And what's the original? Because they truly, those two verses are very opposite. I mean, one is inclusive of all men. The other seems to be more... To men on whom it's Irene in Anthropois... Eutychius and peace to men of good will literally so here the NRSV has become extremely politically correct NAS reads glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased well that's not all that bad um, peace among men mm. glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of goodwill yeah that's really the idea I mean there, it's a gift that they receive but a gift that they then exercise right When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told, as it had been told them. No wise guys yet, certainly not yet. There will be no wise guys in the entire story from Luke. That's a Matthian story. They're not in the Luke account. But here's the birth scene, and the and what happened is the shepherds come and angels proclaim it. And you've said before that probably Luke has had this story told to him by someone who knew Mary, or possibly it was even Mary. By someone who knew Mary, or by Mary herself. Right. The entire account in Luke is Marian oriented. It 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 comes from her family. It seems. It deals with John the Baptist, who was related to her. It deals with her and her experience, her experience of the angel, as opposed to Matthew and Joseph's side of the family. It's interesting how one seems to take from one side, one from the other. And the Lucan account comes from Mary's experience and does seem to dwell on her. And the women are the active people here. I was wondering about the translation for 19, and that dovetails on what you said. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And there's an and there. So she kept all these things and then she pondered them. Yeah, in her heart. Considered them, mold them over. Look, kept. Kept, retained, held on to. And Mary, all these things 
clutched to herself. Because she's probably thinking, you know, I'm the only one and with Joseph who knows how do these people, I, you can see her pondering how, how do these people know, the, you know. Right, how, how, how in the world. How but Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as they had as had been told them. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. Now, you know, right there, you've got a little indicator, a little fascinating little indicator. Luke's writing this to Gentiles who don't know squat about Jewish practices or the law. He's writing this to, to Gentiles for having to be told something that to Jews is, duh, circumcised on the eighth day, duh, be presented, duh, of course. But he's having to explain it to Gentile readers because they don't know, for the most part, they don't know this. And they offered a sacrifice, look at the detail, and they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Which was it? Yeah, really. <laughs> that was the question at the morning session. Was, well, which was it? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons? I said, I don't know. And apparently Luke didn't know. <laughs> which is, by the way, an interesting observation then from the question of inspiration. Why didn't the Holy Spirit tell him? Maybe he was just adding that. And just, well, He's that. pulling this out of his mm -hmm. research and he didn't. He either didn't didn't think to ask Mary which it was. She didn't remember. My gosh, it's been a long time. I don't remember which it was. It was one or the other. So the way I read it, it sounds more like he's just telling his audience that this is the Lord, correct. The Lord that you. This is did. what you did, and right. it's and one or the other. Why. Maybe that's why, because you know he got the story from, from Mary, and now he's adding the explanation of why they're doing this. This is the result of his research. Right, and so he's just filling in. I wasn't really told it didn't really matter what they ordered, but this is what they would have And offered. it truthfully doesn't matter, but it, I just, it was a fascinating question. Which was it? I don't know. But it also points to the nature of inspiration. It's not essential. Therefore, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. He was inspired. He was inspired, exactly. He was inspired. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit... Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought, I doubt that he knew what entirely to expect when this occurred, but when he saw it, he knew it. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, 
Now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the the song of Simeon. Beautiful, beautiful piece. He mentioned the Gentiles first. He noticed he did. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's just a fascinating proclamation considering to whom this book is written. Theophilus, God lover, a Gentile. Israel, I mean, he didn't say Jews, it was Israel. Israel. And to Israel, the Gentile, many of the Gentiles would be Israelites. That's right. Sir, in, in, in multiple ways. In multiple ways. Including in one of the ways of the interpretation of the church is of themselves as the new Israel. In multiple layers and in multiple fulfillments, that's true. And the child's, this is interesting, who here has and Joseph and the mother? Does anybody have that? And Joseph and his mother. And Joseph and his mother were amazed at what had taken was being said about him. A little time for a little bit of textual criticism, just just out of interesting point. My translation says, and the child's mother and father. The child's... Sorry. You should always put those on silent, silent, cheap thrill instead of... (laughs) And the child's father and mother is the reading in the oldest copies that we've got. Mm-hmm. In verse 33. Kai ein hapater autus kai a mater. And the father and the mother. And the father and the mother. Later copies we have take pater, father, out. And put Yosef in, leaving the conjunction, the the definite article, ha. So as a result, you get the reading uh, in the transitional phase of, and the Joseph and the mother of the child. (laughs) And then they realize, well, that Joseph isn't a title, it's his name. So they drop the definite article in later copies still. But there's a transitional phase to try to protect the doctrine of the virgin birth. The textual witnesses have adjusted the reading. Now, the virgin birth is protected by the reading of the scripture no matter what. But the textual witness decided to make it strong by taking father out, pater out, and putting Yosef in. And we actually have copies where it goes, where you have hapater in the body text and out in the margin, Yosef, written by somebody else. And then later copy with ha Yosef, written in the body text. And then yet another later edition where it says Yosef, Joseph. So you have, we actually have the transitional phase where the text was adjusted by later copyists to reflect the doctrinal truth of the virgin birth. This is one of the most glaring examples of it. We actually have 
the evolutionary process, the missing links by which it occurred. It's not just theory. It's not just theory, it's fact. The earliest copies in all of them have the father and the mother of the child. It's only later that you start getting Joseph, or the Joseph and the mother, and then just Joseph and his mother, or the mother. So that's just an interesting little textual critical note. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Why are they being? Why are they amazed by this? They know this about him. They both had, according to Matthew, yeah. Joseph had his appearance of the because angel. According to thank you. They're amazed that these other people yeah. know it. That Simeon knows this. Just like she might have been treasuring those words that those people knew. Exactly. It's reinforcing that it's real and it's not. It's reinforcing. It's not a fairy the, tale. The amazement is in the fact that these people know it. That 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 Simeon knows this. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, "This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed." So that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Good news and bad news. Good news and bad news. Is that like a prophecy? This is definitely a prophecy. This is definitely a prophecy. And it's unique. This is not a reworking of some old Hebrew song or prophecy. This isn't taken from somewhere in the Old Testament. This is unique. This is this yeah. This is this sounds to me like something that that resonated in Mary's head. God, she couldn't get this out. And then especially after Jesus died, she probably remembered this and told it to Luke, who wrote it down. That's what I believe. There was also a prophet, notice the gender there. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was a, of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. Wow. 84 years old. Well, that's very old then, but. Great age. <laughs> great age. Not so great anymore. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. A little bit of hyperbole, I think. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their hometown of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Where's Egypt? It's not in Luke. The story of going to Egypt is not in... It should come right after this event in the temple. It's where that should come. If you're going to harmonize Matthew and Luke, that's where you stick it. But it's not in Luke. So for a moment, forget Matthew. There is no trip to Egypt in Luke. Just as there are no wise guys in 
in Luke. Luke didn't care about the, that portion of the prophecies being fulfilled, did he? Wasn't that fulfilling the prophecy? Yeah, but that's, that's how Matthew articulates it and ties the, this whole story into the prophecies. <coughs> Luke isn't interested in doing that. In fact, he doesn't. Where in here is he saying that this was done to fulfill this or that? It's not his focus. It's not his focus, and it wouldn't be a focus for Gentile Christians and Gentiles who are coming to believe. His focus is to tell the story, to tell the story firstly who Jesus is, and then simply to tell the story. And wasn't it in the in the in Matthew, he was well aware of the zealots who were waiting for Super David to show up. Yeah. And, and, and kick Herod out. Mm-hmm. And, the messianic expectation. Right. And so, and that's, and so, and that's who his audience was, were those that were more Matthew? rational. Oh. And, and, and. But yet, and looking for confirmation of the Messiah. This, but then also there were the zealots who were ready to, and Maccabees uh-huh. were the last group to really fight against um, the the ruling. Well, I don't know who was Antiochus Epiphanes. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it it Matthew's objective is oriented around the expectations of the Jewish and Jewish Christian community. And what he writes about the nativity is oriented that way. It's a masculine orientation. It's oriented towards fulfilling of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah to prove to these people who are reading and hearing this gospel that this Jesus is in fact the Messiah, even though he doesn't do what the Jewish Jews people expect this is what he is, and this proves it. Luke has that does not have that objective. That's nowhere in Luke's radar. Luke, Luke has another objective. Yes, his objective is to identify the source of this child. This is this is the Son of God incarnate in human flesh. Matthew and Luke have that as a common objective to identify. This Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. Apart from that, they have different objectives. They have different audience. They have they have a different point of view. It's amazing. With the differences that exist, they still agree. He was born in Bethlehem. Now, how they got to Bethlehem are two different understandings. In Matthew, it appears as though it appears as though. Matthew doesn't know that they weren't native there. Now that may or not be true, but that's how it appears from reading it. Luke, they definitely are not native of Bethlehem. They, they come from Galilee and they're coming down for the taxation. They stay there for the length of time you need to stay there to take care of all the legal stuff and then they head back to Galilee. All of that stuff, all of the Egyptian stuff, that, that's not there. It's not part of his story. Principally because it doesn't filter in to his objective of telling the story. It's a great comparison. It's really neat to see how Matthew, how his point of trying to convince his fellow Jews, Jews who are now Christian, about the validity of what Christ was, 
is he's trying to tie it back to things that they would recognize and they'd be familiar with that they may not have made that connection. Right. And Luke's purpose, obviously, is not that, so you don't see it. You don't see that in Luke. Well, they're you, talking to two different audiences. Two different audiences, two different sets of expectations. So if you don't read it like this, you don't necessarily see that popping out at you. you, know, you which is the of, idea. Yeah, now, the interesting comparison from this point forward, you might you may notice we haven't touched the genealogies. We'll look, at, we'll look at that next time along with... Now, the next story in Luke, which goes from this point on, in Luke 2, 41, all the way down through 51. That, that passage there actually is part of the nativity sequence, believe it or not, even though it happens when he's 12. But um, it's unique to Luke. We'll handle that next time, um, principally because it's 9.30. But, um, but from this point on, when we get into the triple tradition of Mark being principal, we'll follow the, 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 the chronology of Mark, and Matthew and Luke as they have taken Mark and applied it and looking at how each one did it. We'll be able to examine material that Matthew and Luke had common to each other and how they used it in either Mark or in that other source, the, right, the saying source in the teachings of Jesus. What we've seen thus far is when they're both dealing with material that neither that the other person doesn't have, and yet they're addressing the same basic subject, the birth of Jesus. They've done it completely differently <coughs> for different reasons, with different audience in mind. That's an interesting contrast to what we're next going to see, which is how they dealt with the same basic body of material. And, and to different audiences. That's going to be an interesting contrast in that comparison. Because it, uh, it would be fascinating if they both had, this, had the same birth narrative information and wrote it differently. They didn't have the same information. And so their stories are very different. When we get around to reading in from the baptism on, of, of from, the, from the baptism on, the parallels are going to be very fascinating to see, and how Matthew and Luke used the, it, the accounts differently, and how they use them the same, will be very fascinating to read. Okay, so really, after we get through the transition phase, which deals with the with the uh, genealogies next, and we read this story from Luke that's kind of hanging out there. Then and, and this also raises another question. Why in the heck does Luke put the genealogy so late in the account? Matthew puts it up front. Luke, it doesn't show up until it's time for Jesus to get baptized. Chapter 3. And later on in chapter 3. been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org.
That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.